You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Ed Lin is a native New Yorker of Taiwanese and Chinese descent. He is the first writer to win three Asian American Literary Awards. The last time we had Ed on Talking Taiwan, we spoke about Ghost Month, his first book in the Taipei Night Market series of mysteries. Since then, he's written a YA novel and now four books in the Taipei Night Market series. Death Doesn't Forget is the latest book in the series and it will be published in July. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NatWa, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NatWa was founded in 1988 and its mission is one, to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity. Two, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality. Three, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs. Four, to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan. And five, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Without further ado, here's our interview. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. I should say welcome back. <laughs> oh, it's an honor and a pleasure. It's been a while. So you can say yeah. this <laughs> Yeah, I think the last time I spoke to you was 2014 because I, you know, I was going back through my notes in the past episodes as I do if somebody's a repeat guest and it was 2014 that you're here we talked mm -hmm. about Ghost Month which interestingly enough was the first book in your type A mystery series right? This is true yes. Yeah and we were introduced to your main character Dinan and Dinan has gone through a whole bunch of adventures and now you have four books in this series and we're going to talk about the latest which is Death Doesn't Forget Yes. So I'm wondering, did you plan out the novels in the Taipei Mystery Series? I'm curious because I know other authors, like, you know, a little author, we know J.K. Rowling of Harry Potter. <laughs> We've heard stories that she's planned out, she planned out the seven book series over five years. Did you do that kind of planning when it came to the Taipei book series? No, I, I tried not to have like any sort of preset notions of where the stories would go i would just uh with each book i try to do something a little different and i just try to push all the characters uh as far as they can go in that certain plot and and just try to pick up from there and see where the next book could lead uh it, it's something i i find interesting you know if i just plotted it out it, it would be really uninteresting to me um and uh, I, I wanted it to feel organic rather than something that was meticulously planned. I mean, you know, a novel shouldn't be like a 401k or retirement, <laughs> which is something you really should carefully plan. For people who haven't, and I can't imagine why they wouldn't have read any of these books, but <laughs> for people <laughs> who haven't read any of your books in the Type A Mystery series, how would you describe Gina and this, the, your main character? Uh, he is a guy who, um, at first, when he was young, his parents, his family ran a, a night market stand that he pretty much hated and wanted to get away from it. But circumstances have brought him back to Taiwan uh, back to the very uh, night market stand that he hated so much as a child. And he has found that he has some facility to, in, in terms of uh, operating it. And he's brought it to uh, a new level, especially now that, you know, being a foodie is uh, pretty much a worldwide kind of thing. Um, and uh, he, he becomes mixed up in quite a few... Uh, uh, murders and other crimes that happen in Taiwan um, because of like you know uh, a, a night market in, in Taiwan has just so many crossroads to it so he is uh, standing right in the intersections of many things right 
And how would you say without, you know, giving away too much, we don't want to give away too much, but how do you think he's evolved throughout the four book series? Uh, I feel like he's becoming less selfish uh, and becoming more aware of his own place uh, in terms of his relationships with his, uh, his workers, with his girlfriend, uh, and, uh, you know, with his family. Uh, even though at this point he is an orphan, uh, just because these other people are gone doesn't mean he doesn't have a relationship with them anymore. And uh, I guess in a way that kind of mirrors uh, Taiwan's status. I wanted Jing Nan to be an orphan because Taiwan is kind of an orphan in terms of world affairs. Uh, you know, an, unofficial, uh, an official orphan, but unofficially still has many ties with many countries, including mm-hmm. the U.S., Mm-hmm. Okay, that's an interesting parallel. How did you come up with that premise for Death Doesn't Forget? Uh, well, with each book, uh, I do something different. And with Death Doesn't Forget, I was thinking a lot about uh, the Aboriginal communities in uh, Taiwan and how, uh, you know, even though many are recognized, there are still some that are uh, are unofficial and not recognized. Uh, ironically, uh, the Ketagalan, uh, you know, boulevard that is outside the presidential uh, building that is named after the tribe, That's that tribe itself is not officially recognized. And, and so um, it, it becomes this kind of question about visibility uh, in Taiwanese society because it's not really... I, I mean, even though there are like earmarked uh, seats in Congress as being uh, for Aboriginal representation, there's so much that uh, Aboriginals have no say in whatsoever. Um, say like uh, a, a lot of trade deals that Taiwan goes through. Um, it, it seems that a lot of uh, the economic gains in, in society have bypassed Aboriginal communities. Um, and they still face the destruction of whatever remaining lands that they have. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of wanted to bring that to the forefront of this book. Um, I had earlier uh, had each book sort of pegged towards like a holiday in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that is, you know, kind of biased towards like uh, the lunar calendar of like people of Chinese descent who came through. Um, but I, I wanted to, for, for this book, to swing it back to the original inhabitants of the land. And the thing is, is that, um, y- you know, a lot of the, the people of Chinese descent uh, through millennia who come to mm-hmm. Taiwan, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they have Aboriginal blood because of uh, interbreeding and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so I, I wanted to bring that awareness. Like, this is not like some foreign community to you these are literally your brothers and sisters Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and ancestors yeah that's very interesting i thought it was interesting the way that the characters were representative of all different groups in the in taiwan society i'm also curious so when you write a book i imagine then you probably take a similar approach to your answer that you Uh, your answer to my previous question, because I was going to ask, like, do you know how it's going to turn out in the end when you start off writing or do you let the story unfold and take take turns while you write? I I generally have an idea of where, you know, how a book starts, how it ends. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I just sort of try to get there. Um, (laughs) But when, when I'm about three quarters of the way through, I start at the end. And go backwards a little oh, bit. Um, it, it, it just helps. You know, everybody has their own writing process. Sure, yeah. Uh, yeah. For me, that's, that's what I do. Okay, interesting. I feel like the way that you describe Taipei in this novel, uh, that Taipei itself is like a character in the book. And I found myself thinking about the different parts that you mentioned in there because I did live in Taipei for a short time well, not that short, like a month or two, but I don't think I'm extremely familiar with it, like in and out as a native or someone that's lived there longer term. And I 
really found myself thinking about Guangzhou Street because you uh, meant you described it as a seedy area. Could you talk about that? Like, does it have a seedy reputation in history? Uh, okay. I I don't know if it has a historically seedy history, huh. um, but the last you know, uh, last couple of times I've been to Taipei, mm -hmm. um, it's it's that Guangzhou, like west of Longshan Temple. Yeah. I don't know if you've yeah. walked down the street before. Okay, yeah, you're a I don't woman know if too. I have. Yeah, but you know, if you're a guy and yeah. you're walking past these things uh -huh. that have, you know, arcades and uh, yeah, are uh, what are the, the the grab machines. For like, oh, yeah, the, that boys. grabs the stuff, yeah, the claw machines, but they so, um, it, once you're walking by there, there are a number of women in the streets, like you know, who are kind of camouflaged by that level, <laughs> who will, like, you know, like the, the claw grabbing, will grab <laughs> like men, and, like try to get you to go upstairs and like hang out with the women. It's like, whoa. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I you know the first time this happened, it was like almost ten in the morning. I'm like, come on, <laughs> give it, give it a rest, you know. Um, uh, but you know, ironically, uh, you have to head down this boulevard to get to this uh, Aboriginal market uh, that was established by the city, or, or I guess the 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 country government. Uh, mm -hmm. to, they had established this uh, Aboriginal business uh, sort of complex. Uh, uh -huh. I don't know when it was launched, maybe in like 2014, 2015. Okay. Uh, but it was a place where they, they were training Aboriginals how to run their own business. Oh, okay. um, and, um, it, it, and it was launched with great fanfare. There were like photographs of like government officials there and everything. Uh, and but I when I went to visit, there was pretty much nobody there, and <laughs> the the places where they're supposed to have their businesses, there was only like one open, like oh, one dear. restaurant open. And I stopped by, and I started talking to this woman who was running the market, and she said, "Yeah, you know, nobody ever comes here. Oh um, dear, uh, you know, like you're the first person who's come in today." And, oh and I said, I was like, wasn't this like a program that was meant to right. train Aboriginals how to run mm -hmm. their own businesses? Mm -hmm. And she said, she said, yes, but they're, they're training us to uh, how to operate a, a night market stand when um, in our culture at night, the family's supposed to be together, we're not supposed to be oh. running a business. And so there was that big disconnect between oh like, you know, oh. the government trying to do something good mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's completely out of touch with the cultural, right. uh, oh. yeah. So since Taipei is kind of like a character in the book, I wonder how would you describe Taipei? Oh, <laughs> That's wow. probably a huge question. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, Taipei itself is, it's a fairly big city. Um, it's, it's not the biggest in East Asia, but man, there is like so, it has such a long, long history and so many conflicting ideas all tied up with it, you know. Um, I mean, you know, the whole fairly recent history is that, I mean, Taipei became uh, of real prominence under, like, the Japanese because, uh, you know, Taipei was promoted as, like, the premier city, Taihoku, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. because it's closer to Japan, uh, while mm -hmm. Taizong had been, more like you know the previous capital in mm -hmm. fact uh it was like the intellectual capital of uh, taiwan mm -hmm. uh i as, as far as things stand now i mean just because the government uh buildings are all located in taipei yeah. it, it you know never really recovered um taichung never really recovered its status uh, not to mention that during the white terror period, uh, a number of the Taizong elite were targeted by the KMT. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, she's, so you can't just start talking about Taipei and it's like, it's, it just <laughs> proliferates into everything. There's, there's just so many, um, 
you know, like any great city, uh, it, it just varies from block to block. Uh, yeah. But there's that added sort of thing where, uh, that, you know, like every street name is like, uh, it's going to be spelled out in English. It's going to be spelled out in like pseudo pinion or like yeah. real pinion. And so we've got like three or four different names for like the same street. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me think about the, uh, uh, you, you know, the metro system, like each stop you have like four different languages. For each yeah. Stop. That's pretty mind boggling for people that don't know every stop on the MRT gets announced in like, how, like four different languages. I don't know how many. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. It, it, it's, it, it's first announced in Mandarin and then Hakka and then uh, Holo, English maybe. and Holo somewhere in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember the order. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. I was joking with a friend and he was like, you know, by the time they're on the fourth language, you're already at the next stop. <laughs> but it, it is an amazing city, you know. Um, yeah. There really is something for everyone there. Um, yeah. And even within each block, um, just like the elevation of the street changes. <laughs> the sidewalks, yeah. I actually even wrote about that when I lived in Taiwan and I was blogging in the early days about how, you know, it's very uneven just walking along the sidewalk. You could, like, trip over, like, the, the unevenness of the sidewalks in front of the storefronts. Um, I mean, there is literally history you're tripping over with these blocks. <laughs> really, it's incredible. Yeah. And it's so interesting when it comes to major cities, right? Because I feel like when it comes to major cities, we can always imagine the underworld or like the so so called petty criminals and all that. And I I thought you like really kind of captured that. It was, Really interesting to me. Oh, thank you, thank you. It also made me think about this uh, article that was written by the Economist last year with the headline "The Most Dangerous Place on Earth." Yes, I saw <laughs> and how that. that. Yeah, how that created a lot of controversy. So I think that while obviously Taipei and major cities do have, you know, crime and people doing things, but actually I would have to say that. Taiwan and Taipei is actually very safe. I've had the experience and I know a lot of my friends that live there talk about how they routinely leave their bikes unlocked or their laptops unattended in cafes and you know and things don't get stolen. So on the other hand it is a very safe society I think. Absolutely. And uh you know organized crime, you know, I I have to yeah. say this. I mean Whenever there's a natural disaster or like, uh, you know, an earthquake or a building burning down, like the the gangsters are the first ones on the scene with release for people <laughs> with like food, blankets. Really, I didn't you know, know that. Helping and everything. Yes, um, because I mean, uh, in, in so many ways, uh, a well-established organized crime group is more reliable than the government. Uh, than government agencies. Uh, and there's not a lot of red tape that they have to go through in order to provide for the people. And, and organized crime couldn't exist if uh, if people really didn't want it. So as long as people see it as a benefit, it's, it's always going to be there. Um, the other side is that there are always, you know, candidates in, in elections who are backed by organized right. crime. Um, you know, uh, it's, <laughs> you, you know, technically, um, it's, it's not illegal to, to, to belong to an organized crime group. You just have to register. I, I remember <laughs> I was talking, I was talking to this guy who was in a, a you know, who's in an organized crime group. And he yeah. said that they got in this big fight at a karaoke club. Uh, and then the next day, uh, a police officer came down to the organization headquarters and said, look, two of the guys you beat up had American passports. You have to send me two people to take the blame for this. Oh. So, so then they, they got two people to take the blame. And, and, you know, they went down to the police station and said, oh, yeah, we, we're responsible. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs>
That's interesting. So it really is very organized. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So many natural disasters, like uh, you know, illegal developments on like yes. land. That's, I mean, that was illegal to begin with. So, yeah. I mean, already the government's kind of at fault for that, right? I mean, somebody yeah. took a bribe for that. So I don't know yeah. who's who's worse. You know, the the criminal True. or the the crooked politician. <clears throat> True. I mean, at least the the criminal is not pretending to be something else. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one way to look at it. Yeah, uh, you've really painted a picture of the diversity of Taiwan society, like the different groups we talked about, and you've also interwoven in their history and the different like pe people's social standing, the tensions between the different groups, like the people that came over from China, the so-called Taiwanese that were um, probably have some ancestry from the Han that came over from China at some point and then perhaps intermarried with the indigenous, the indigenous people, all that. I'm wondering if it was intentional the way that you wove this all in because I felt like it was in a sense educating the reader who especially if they don't know anything about Taiwan, it was a way for them to learn about Taiwan's history and society. I mean, you know, if, if you don't know much about a country, you kind of think of the people as a bit monolithic. Uh, but, you know, just a, a little deeper look at, at Taiwan and people have incredible differences. There's incredible diversity uh, to the people living there. Um, and, and, you know, there's the, the question of like new immigrants who come in, yes. you know, um, the people who <clears throat> married in, uh, and then, uh, you know, the contract workers, like, uh, I, I kind of think about the situation that they're in, like a lot of the migrant workers, like from the Philippines who have to report mm -hmm. to their dorm by like nine o'clock mm -hmm. that night, otherwise they get mm -hmm. penalized. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> and, and they, they subject, the, subject themselves to such rules as like, Wow, this is like uh, this is not too different from the the migrant workers who come into the U.S. Um, it might even be a little yeah. worse because you can't mm -hmm. simply cross the border. You got to take mm -hmm. a ship or a plane back home. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there are so many great things about Taiwan, and and so many ways that it, it still needs to 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 get to a more equitable place. Um, but uh, I mean, in terms of East Asia, I I can't think of a a place that's like more tolerable. I mean, you know, we're looking at the Economist uh, article that called it the yes. most dangerous place on earth, and yet yeah. when you're there, there's a certain uh, there's a real island mentality. Like people in Taiwan will kill themselves to help you. Like even as a stranger, <laughs> it's like unbelievable. Um, did I tell you that uh, I was a little lost in Taizong and like this woman was like trying to help me at the bus stop. And when okay. the bus came, she said, you should get on this bus. Yeah. And uh, like, I was fully prepared to like walk the mile or two or whatever. Yeah. You know? okay. And like, she pushes me on the bus <laughs> and she, she yells to the driver, Tasu Wairin! You know, he's like, oh, <laughs> like to, to take care of me. And then the bus takes off and I don't have any change in my pockets at all. For, you know, I can't even pay for this bus ride. This mother nudges this young girl to give me the change to, to pay oh, for wow. the, the bus fare. And like, I was like, wow, I cannot. They, you know, oh, wow. everyone's so nice here. It just kills me. You know, yeah. even even the gangsters are really nice. You know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah you know, as you mentioned, <laughs> yeah, I met this guy. Um, <laughs> there was this husband and wife. Like the husband belonged to one faction, the wife was in another faction, oh. and um, you know, I was eating dinner with them, and like, you know, they knew I was allergic to seafood, and I I picked up this like roll that had like shrimp in it, and I like, bit into it, and I was like, oh. And, and, like, the wife jumped across the table <laughs> a napkin to, like, grab, you know, the shrimp oh, away from me. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yes, yes. And now for a short break. 
Hello, listeners. We're going to be experimenting with some shorter form content, under 20 minutes long. And we'd like to hear from you. Would you like to listen to shorter episodes? What would you like to hear more of or less of? Email us at podcast at talkingtaiwan.com. We also have a special announcement for all of our donors, past, present, and future. We're giving all of our donors exclusive first listening access to upcoming interviews with Karen Lin, Democratic candidate for Justice of the Civil Court in Queens, New York. Chin Chi Yang, a multidisciplinary artist who was recently inducted into the New York Foundation for the Arts Hall of Fame. Michelle Kuo, an attorney, activist, and author of Reading with Patrick, which is a runner-up for the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Goddard Riverside Stefan Russo Book Prize for Social Justice. Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, and Joe Henley, author of Migrante. If you want exclusive access to these episodes and more, support Talking Taiwan by making a contribution to our GoFundMe campaign. We are so grateful for our growing listenership and all the support that we've been receiving. Now, back to the episode. Speaking of your characters, because you mentioned migrant workers, uh, I'm very suspicious of one of the minor characters. Mm. <laughs> and I think I can say that without giving away. But that I'm talking about Lynn, the wife of uh, Frankie the cat. I don't know. I just found that kind of suspicious or like mysterious because there's something about how they met that is kind of curious to me. And I... Yeah, I wonder if that's intentional or if we're going to learn more in another book. <laughs> Are you telling me that somebody's backstory isn't checking out with you? <laughs> no, no, I'm just like, because that third envelope, you know, and how, you know, she's, she's somehow connected through his brother, and I'm like, hmm, I'm wondering about that. <laughs> I don't know. You know, did you hear about this thing? Like during the, the white terror period, like, Everybody just burned all their documents, all their papers, just so they're they're. You well, know, the ones that were smart, yeah. Yeah, never mind <laughs> the keepsakes and the mementos. It, they could find something to hold against <clears throat> you, you know, just burn it all. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah. I still kind of feel like, I, I mean, even though martial law has been over and everything, people are still reluctant to put almost anything in writing, you know. I mean, particularly, like, opinions oh, and sure. stuff, you know? Oh, oh sure. yeah. Yeah, and even reserved in how they talk, you know? Right. I mean, definitely more so than, like, you know, Chinese people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's definitely that trauma, that mm -hmm. memory. Um, okay, let me see what else did I want to ask. Yeah, there's quite a few characters that I'm interested in that I wonder if they were based on somebody or if we're going to see them again, like the character, I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce his name right, Paisal, the one that I describe as the leader of the Aborigine Men Support Group. Um, was <laughs> well, he modeled after somebody? Or, or? Well, he's he's always been around. Uh, he's, oh, okay. He, <laughs> he's a guy who is just trying to to uplift his people you know yeah yeah by any means necessary yeah. as someone once said yeah <laughs> right <laughs> how much of the book is uh based on real people or organizations you know i i try to stay abreast of uh what's happening in uh taiwan um i i have tried to go every two years but it's been a number of years since i've been so yeah. um I'm relying a lot on news reports, uh, tweets, <laughs> some some friends on the ground and stuff. Um, you, you know, just uh, I I believe there was a, a recent case. I don't know if it was settled yet or not, but um, th there was a a young Vietnamese man who was a contract fisherman on a Taiwanese mm -hmm. boat, and he apparently died at sea. And they just dumped his body into the the ocean, and like mm. his family feels like uh, he had been abused by the Taiwanese oh, crew wow. and was murdered at sea. And yeah. they were saying that no, he got sick, and you know it wasn't uh, sanitary to keep his body oh, on board, geez. so we got rid of oh, it. Boy. So oh, 
I don't know if there was some kind of settlement or something, but oh. I remember reading about, you know, other migrant workers who yeah. by misadventure or by yeah. abuse who, who were died mm -hmm. and you know they these people settled with their families for like thousand two thousand dollars and uh oh, yeah and I, I i can't help but think about like uh you know the human cost of a, a rapidly industrializing country mm -hmm. um you, you know uh, it, it's it's borne by a lot of migrant workers right now mm -hmm. rather than like taiwanese citizens um, mm -hmm. like the really hard work. Um, so that, that really gets to me. That's, that's something mm -hmm. that I want to write about. Yeah. Uh, and voice, even though it is like a, a fiction book, you know, a sure. mystery, I, th yeah. there's yeah. has to be a, a, yeah, a truthfulness to the book itself. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's very interesting. Cause that subject has come up on this podcast and it has come up in the news a lot more. There's been some coverage related to COVID. When you meet with these people that are your uh, sources, or like you said, you've met with people from organized crime and do you have a translator with you or how do you communicate with them? Very interestingly, uh, many of them speak English, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> um, but I, I have had translators. Yeah. yeah, we did touch upon that, but I'm just curious are any of the events or things inspired by actual crime cases or local stories that you've heard about in Taiwan? Um, I never take anything directly. I just yeah. try to think about yeah. uh, some of the people that I know yeah. or yeah. that I've heard of and yeah. put them in kind of extreme situations. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I feel like when every when anybody is is desperate enough or feeling cornered that they're they're capable of monstrous things you know yeah mm. uh, whether you know killing somebody or like even mm. torturing somebody mm. i'm also really interested in this the idea of this orphan brigade that you talked about in the book yes and as I thought about it, I don't know if there's a connection, but it also it actually reminded me of the Taiwanese baseball teams that they're formed during the Japanese era. Like it's as if anyone's seen Kano, uh, you're familiar with this, and like how during the Japanese era they had these baseball teams that they they claimed were like very diverse. They had Japanese, they had local Taiwanese, and they had indigenous players. And they were they became quite popular and were actually even seen as national heroes. And I couldn't help but wonder if the Orphan Brigade was maybe inspired by that because that made me think of that. You know, the Orphan Brigade itself, I don't know if it was created for the media or if there really was one that seriously trained. Um, I've only read about it, but... I haven't read about anyone actually serving in it. Uh, yes. But of course, Frankie himself was used as part of that, uh, that media operation to sort of like, uh, you know, a, one particular group to focus on for the U.S. media. Like, here, your war dollars are going to this, you know, to fight communism. <laughs> These young orphans will have their revenge on the, you know, for the death of their fathers and everything. Uh, Kano itself is, is very interesting. I have the DVD. Um, and uh, I've also read this book about, uh, you know, how like Japan had uh, brought baseball to its colonies in an yeah. effort, you know, soft power to, yes. to exercise control. Yes. And, and the whole thing about having like an integrated team, like what, what is it that the coach said? The aboriginals are fleet of foot. Uh, the Taiwanese are great fielders and the Japanese are great batters. It's, it's a perfect team. It's a dream team kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But that was also, like, in the context of, like, yes, they're going to be a great uh, outpost of Japan here, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, fortunately, uh, the baseball tradition has, uh, you know, continues in Taiwan. And, uh, yeah. you know, as Chinese Taipei, uh, Taiwan has, has won a number of championships mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in, in Little League, 
you know, one could argue mm-hmm. that that yeah. is like, you know, Taiwan soft power. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And I'm also wondering about some of the things in the novel that, you know, maybe were not exactly historically accurate or maybe a little bit stretched or fictionalized. I'm thinking about Green Island. I've heard about the political prisoners that were sent there and that some were tortured, but I'm not that familiar with the other types of prisoners. Were they subject to hard labor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was. There, there was hard labor on Green Island. Um, I don't know if anyone had to share a cell that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Frankie had to, but mm-hmm. yeah, there, there was a lot of hard labor there. Um, mm-hmm. quite, quite a few people died. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, I kind of feel like government records were not well kept, uh, about that area. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, the interesting thing is that that's where they kept political prisoners and you know yes. they had like this co-mingled thing with hardened criminals too right, so right. Mm-hmm. that might have been a preview of like uh Taiwanese society in the future mm-hmm. <laughs> people who wanted to reform it and uh remembering their old friends too i apologize that i haven't read all of the books in your type of mystery series which are ghost month incensed 99 ways to die and death doesn't forget but it seems to me like there's a common thread or themes obviously related to death right um they are murder mysteries so there's some death and superstitious superstitions and cultural customs did i get that right or what would you say are are the common themes or threads well you know i mean death Kind of has to be. Uh, <laughs> uh, someone asked me before, like, wh- you know, why does there have to be murders in every book? And my response is that, you know, it's it's like the one crime that you can't have. Uh, it's irrevocable. Like someone dying is is something that can't be made up. You can't really. Mm-hmm. You can take insurance on like stuff that gets stolen or whatever, mm-hmm. but like. You know, highest stakes is having <clears throat> someone murdered. Um, yeah, there so, can't be replaced or any yeah. restitution. Yeah. Yeah, and like uh, you know, it's not only that one life; it's all the other lives connected to it mm-hmm. that uh, mm-hmm. are affected as well. Um, but I, I try to have a sense of humor, <laughs> if, if <Yeah>. that's possible. <laughs> is there something about the superstitious nature of the Taiwanese that gives you a lot of fodder for your books? I feel like that's something that runs through a lot of your books there are amazing superstitions in taiwan uh (laughs) (laughs) i mean you know supposedly um open open fire burnings of like uh you know the hell banknotes and stuff is outlawed but i i've seen it all over the place (laughs) everywhere i go and like uh you know i haven't seen i'm not aware of anyone being fined for it or anything um but it, it's interesting because the temple is sort of where um, it, it's kind of like a no judgment zone. You know, there are temples that are operated by organized crime. And like you see the guys with the tattoos, mm-hmm. the scary mm-hmm. tattoos, like working there and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, but like, that's fine. You can just go in and pray to the various mm-hmm. idols mm-hmm. for, you know, whatever ailments you're facing or difficulties you're having. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can believe that you're speaking with the God through this idol, <laughs> um, yeah. you know, regardless of like who's around you and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't know. And, and the thing is, is about Taiwan, it's just having the, the Taoist, the Buddhist gods sometimes in the same tableau yeah. is yeah. just like, yeah. it's, it's almost mind boggling. And, and yeah. yet nobody would ever discount anyone else's beliefs. Uh, I remember I was talking to this gangster mm-hmm. and I was like, Hey, do you, do you believe in, in these gods and stuff? <laughs> and he said, okay, I don't believe in it, but on the other hand, I don't want to piss anything off. So, you know, I I totally give to the temples and stuff. And I was like, wow. Yeah. It's like the opposite of fear of missing out. It's like the fear of, you know, being right. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. I remember in our previous interview, you talked about how, at least when you wrote the Chinatown series, how you really immersed yourself in the time period when writing. Do you do some of that immersion when you do the writing for the Taipei Mystery Series or when you're in, type, in Taiwan? Um, I try to. Um... I don't know if I'm always successful. I mean, the thing is that it's like, it's a contemporary kind of thing. Um, yeah. The Chinatown series that I wrote is set in 1976. So, yeah. you know, that way I would just close myself off and like delve mm -hmm. into like the newspapers and the shows mm -hmm. and, yeah. and the media of the day. Um, but like now it's like things could actively change and stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the tr for the Trump years you know they were pretty good for taiwan weren't they um it, it brought it to the world stage uh, you know maybe not as like a great place but like a new potential flashpoint again and again and again <laughs> um and like with uh, russia's invasion of the ukraine it's like yeah. everybody just stop bringing up Taiwan. You're just giving China more <laughs> ideas. Just stop it. You know, I kind of feel like China, you know, overall, China may not really care so much about reclaiming Taiwan. The thing is, is that they don't want Taiwan to talk about being independent or anyone else to talk about it. If Taiwan just said nothing, China would be okay with it. I, I, I kind of feel it, it's mm. like a real Chinese mentality. It's like mm. we won't have any problems if we just stop talking about it. Right? <laughs> so That's like a very if, interesting point. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if Taiwan was just hardcore about we are the Republic of China, we are a part of China, blah, blah, blah. You know, you know, Xi Jinping would be like, okay, they are a part of China. It's just when these moves towards like, you know, the, the Japanese unofficial embassies calling it Japan-Taiwan relations. And, and like, you know, China's ears go, huh? Taiwan, yeah. Taiwan, there is no Taiwan, it's China. Taiwan province, you know? <laughs> oh, my goodness. I do have to say, Ed, oh, my goodness. I can't even remember what year it was, but I think it wasn't that long after I came back to New York after living in Taiwan. I went to one of your book readings. I think it was at the NYU bookstore on Broadway, like around near 8th Street around there. And it actually left an impression on me because... Well, I don't know how many book readings I've been to before then, but I like the way that you did your book reading because you're very animated, the way that you read and you did the characters and stuff, and that always left an impression on me. And I thought, well, if I ever do a book reading or something, I'm going to you know, put some feeling into it that way. So I, I feel like a book good. reading, it, it's an event. And the author, it's something that the author should just launch yes. themselves into, really. Yes. I mean, no one else can read your book like you do. No one else knows your characters like you do. And you, you have to create this experience. You know, people came out for your book launch. They didn't mm -hmm. just buy it on Amazon or something. Mm -hmm. They came to support whatever store, <laughs> right. you know, had you. It should right. be special. It should be memorable. It, it should be, like, performative, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not everybody does that or thinks that way. But they should. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what's what's worse than going to a reading where you know, the author's like, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. it's like painful for the author and the audience. Yeah, like they're gonna forget if they don't uh, the lines of their book if they lift their eyes from the page. <laughs> oh. I also noticed that with this novel, Death Doesn't Forget, you switched from first person narration to third person. Yes. I'm wondering why that is, and does that indicate that there's gonna be more books in this series, like a spin-off book that centers around another character? Oh no, I I just try to do something a little different with each book, okay. and you know, in, in this one I happen to go into the third person. Uh, I had been reading a number of books uh, by this author, James T. Farrell. He okay. was an Irish American author, uh, probably best known for Studs Lonigan. Studs okay. Lonigan, yes. Um, 
really fantastic. Um, James C. Farrell not only created the trilogy of like, uh, you know, studs, but he also had a pentology of the Danny O'Neill series. And it, it's all written in the third person. And it's really great how he, he juxtaposes like this, uh, Irish American family with a recently arrived, more recently arrived Irish immigrants and just all living together and all having these issues and, uh, just really great stuff. Yeah. Um, and, right. and I was like, wow, you can, he did some really cool things in the third mm-hmm. person that you can't mm-hmm. do in the first person. Right. I want to try that. Okay. So, hey, here we are. Yeah. Okay. So, but yeah, you didn't answer my other question. Are there going to be any more books in the type A mystery series and any spinoffs featuring the other characters as primary characters? Oh, uh, I don't think there's going to be like spinoffs, but, uh, I think there will always be a, a new Taipei mainline series book um, unless Jing Nan dies or I die. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, and I also noticed in the time that we spoken, of course, you also made a foray into YA novel writing with David Tung can't have a girlfriend until he gets into an Ivy League college. <laughs> what motivated you to write that novel? What made me write that novel? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. you know, uh, my agent had been on my case to write a YA book for quite a while. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, he gave me like a whole list of books to check out. Uh, cause like he, he said like, you know, you're really good with voice and characters, you know, you could write a really great YA novel. Mm-hmm. And I, I honestly hadn't read many at all. And, yeah. and the ones that I read, I didn't feel like it really captured what I had faced um, okay. in my uh, childhood and stuff. Right. And so I was like, you know, this is the deal. This is like a, a young Asian American kid, you know, forced yeah. to work at his family business while yeah. also expected to do really well in school. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's kind of his story. And, um, and, and the thing is, I, I pulled a lot of things back from college uh, mm-hmm. in order to do it because I didn't grow up in an Asian majority town uh, while right. David Tung does. And so okay. I, I wanted it to be this opportunity where, like, I'm not going to give any space to, like, you know, white racism. It's all going to be about, like, you know, these Asian people and, like, problems that we have amongst ourselves. You okay. know? Uh, we're going to talk okay. about ourselves here. You know, yeah. uh, in, in this upscale New Jersey suburb and also in like, <laughs> this Chinatown Chinese uh-huh. school. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So what kind of feedback did you get on that? Uh, everything across the spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> Good and bad. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't live or write to, to yeah. get feedback from people. It's, yeah. you know, writing the book is always, you know, for me, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe for the kid I used to be. Yeah. No, because I mean, I think it's an interesting audience because um, I'm just thinking if the protagonist is a high school boy, uh, are they reading? Are they even reading YA novels? Because maybe it's my impression or I could be mistaken that girls are reading more YA novels, but maybe they would be interested in this book because it's a perspective the or the boys perspective i don't know well you know i've had readings at like schools and stuff mm-hmm. and i've gone to a couple yeah. of schools that the nypls yeah. brought me to and yeah I, I feel like it's a myth that girls are reading more than boys i kind of feel yeah. like the boys are more yeah. discreet about it you know uh, uh-huh. you know like the girls yeah. walk around holding the books or whatever and the boys don't you know it's not cool to like <laughs> show that you're reading they maybe got it in their book bag or something but uh-huh. um yeah, it's, it's just different, but I, I, I feel yeah. like it's, I don't think girls read more than boys. You know, yeah. the girls yeah. might be better at, like, processing the information mm-hmm. and stuff, mm-hmm. but the, the boys are still checking it out. Yeah. Are you going to write any more YA novels, you think? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so then I have to ask, like, can uh, people maybe wondering what's next? 
Uh, do you have another book in the works, or do you know what's going to be next? Well, there's always a, another Taipei book coming. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, yeah. Hmm. I'm working on another crime book. Uh, okay. I don't really feel like talking about. Sure. But, yeah, you might not be ready. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not ready yet. Is there any story behind the title? How you came up with that? Um, well, you know, I kind of wanted it to have a certain certain cadence to it. Death doesn't forget. Um, yeah. And it's kind of like how you know um, one character's obviously neglect and perhaps mistreatment of his young son coming back to haunt him. I kind of feel like, uh, you know, even though Boxer is, is not like a real great example of an upstanding member of society, <laughs> that we all know people like him. Yeah. I do have to say that it is quite a pace turner if it gets to be more of a pace turner at the end. Okay, well, Ed, I want to thank you so much. It's so much fun having you on Talking Thanks Talk. so much for having me. Yeah. What's the best way for people to learn more about you or to connect with you? Well, there's my website, edlinforpresident.com. Check mm -hmm. it out. Yeah. Yeah. And, if you write me an interesting uh, email, I might reply, too. Oh, yes, there you go. And uh, best social media platform for people to follow you on? Uh, I, I feel like my Instagram's probably best. Yeah. 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 Okay. Great. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, thank you so much for you for oh, this. Thanks so much. I've been speaking with Ed Lin, author of Death Doesn't Forget, the latest book in his Type A Night Market series of mysteries that will be published in July. This episode of Talking Taiwan has been sponsored by NATWA, the North America Taiwanese Women's Association. NATWA was founded in 1988 to evoke a sense of self-esteem and enhance women's dignity, to oppose gender discrimination and promote gender equality, to fully develop women's potential and encourage their participation in public affairs to contribute to the advancement of human rights and democratic development in Taiwan, to reach out and work with women's organizations worldwide to promote peace for all. To learn more about NATWA, visit their website, www.natwa.com. Now it's time for you to show us some love. We just found out that you can rate us on Spotify. Or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Audible, leave us a review there. It helps others to discover Talking Taiwan. To learn more about any of the items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. There will list any related links. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.